pray with me? Our Father in heaven, God above all gods, King of kings, Lord of lord, Father of our Savior, Jesus Christ, watch over us today. Help us to hear your word and know that it's true and that by it, you have saved all those who believe. Father, this is the most amazing gift. And all we can do is come before you in humility and thank you for it and praise you. So will you bless the words out of my mouth today that somehow I can communicate the truth of your word to these people. I ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, I don't have any children, but as I've often said, I was one once, and some might argue that I still am. (laughs) So I actually do have first-hand knowledge on just how loving and caring children can be. Or is that selfish and deceitful? Or maybe manipulative and diabolically evil? (laughs) Sometimes they can be all of these simultaneously. These are the really talented kids. I'm sort of kidding, but regardless, our children are usually our pride and joy. And of course, we love every single one of them equally, right? Well, at least that's what we're supposed to say. But truth be told, parents are no different than any other type of sinner. We will very often have a favorite, even though we know that we're probably not supposed to. There's always seems to be that one child who we either admire because we see a part of ourselves in them, or we elevate them because they are so much more talented or smart or physically gifted than we ever were or will ever hope to be. So while it could be argued that it's alleged blasphemy to elevate one part of God's revelation over another, it's hard not to look at the book of Romans and say, This is one of the most important books in the Bible. And Romans 8, and even more specifically, Romans 8.1, are nothing less than the pinnacle of Scripture. It's simple. This book, this chapter, these few short verses are that child that just seems to do everything right. They are, quite frankly, our favorite. And if you happen to think this way, as I do, then you're also in good company because there are many other world-renowned theological academics who would enthusiastically agree. But hold on a minute, you might say. What about 2 Timothy 3.16? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Well, of course this is true. It's God's word. It has to be true. But it still doesn't change the fact that this book, this chapter, these verses are some of the most gospel-drenched words in all of Scripture. I mean, let's be honest. If you're going to point out some place in the Bible that oozes the fullness of gospel truth, you're probably not going to direct people to the endless Old Testament Jewish laws in Leviticus or the often linguistically challenging genealogies of Genesis, as important as these texts are for understanding the unfolding redemptive historical narrative. But the reality is that Romans 8, and particularly verses 1 to 4, present the entirety of gospel truth in a pithy, concise, and declarative way that leaves very little up for theological debate. 
when it comes to how God saves sinners. Not only that, these verses quite literally explain the significance of both the Genesis genealogies and the endless Levitical laws. Robert Fair Capon is not a particularly revered name in Reformed circles. <clears throat> He's actually accused of being a universalist, which is just another word for believing that God will save everyone. And while he does have some interesting and unique ways for understanding certain passages that we, diligent Reformed people, claim identify the reality that God chooses some to be saved and some not, which appears to be clearly detailed in Romans 9, the very next chapter, or the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, he has, however, made a comment that even Reformed theological sticklers like all of us can't deny and it's entitled The Ticking Time Bomb of the Epistle to the Romans. The Epistle to the Romans has sat around in the church since the first century like a bomb ticking away the death of religion, and every time it's picked up, the ear-splitting freedom in it has gone off with a roar. The only sad thing is that the church as an institution has spent most of its time playing bomb squad and trying to defuse it. For your comfort, though, it cannot be done. Your freedom remains as close to your life as Jesus and as available to your understanding as the nearest copy. Like Augustine, therefore take up and read the one and the other and then hold on to your hat. Compared to that explosion, the clap of doom sounds like a cap pistol. I can't argue with that. With a little less drama, prominent and accomplished Reformed scholar Douglas Moo notes that Romans 8 can be summed up in one word, assurance. But I would like to add to that a two-word preface, emphatic declarative assurance. What Paul says here is clear, unambiguous truth. It's not up for debate. Yes, we are free to and should be encouraged to unpack the details, but this will only add to the strength, the power, and the validity of these words and what they want the world to understand and embrace. It's actually an explanation for John 14:6, Christ's somewhat offensive and often argued as being a very not loving statement of exclusivity. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's unfortunate and sad that so many of God's image bearers view this declarative statement in John 14 as limiting, arrogant, and exclusionary. But what Paul presents here in Romans 8 is a proof text for what Jesus says in John 14, 6, in a way that destroys any and all of these objections. What appears on the surface to be uncaring and full of conceit and prejudice, when it is understood correctly, is the ultimate definition of our freedom. Because everything that was necessary to accomplish our salvation and the reconciliation of all things that have been corrupted because of our sin, which is everything, has now been entirely accomplished by God. Everything in this passage, everything in the book of Romans, everything in the, his, in the entire historical redemptive narrative has been and will be accomplished by God. God is the one and only person who saves. The for God has done, of verse 3, is the hinge that everything in the Bible swings on. 
For God has done is the foundation and summation that enables the truth that immediately follows, the therefore of Romans 8.1. If ever there was a mic drop moment in Scripture, this is it. This is the gospel. You know, every time I want to explain the, the entirety of the, what the Bible says, I sum it up like this. One, God made everything good. Two, we broke every good thing that God gave us. And three, God sent his only son to fix everything and make it right. So here, at the very beginning of Romans 8, Paul slams us with a declarative statement. If you trust in Christ Jesus as your Savior, you are now, right now, immediately upon the regeneration of your heart by God, no longer condemned to an eternity separated from God. This is euangelion, the proclamation of the good news. It is the gospel. But we have to ask ourselves a question. To what end? Yes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of what God has done. But so what? What does this actually mean? Most importantly, what does it mean to us Christians in our day-to-day lives? Well, conveniently enough, Paul just happens to tell us here in verse 4, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who now walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So to answer these questions, I want to address two main points that explain both what God has done and what our response should look like because of it, by unpacking what Paul says in verses 2, 3, and 4 of our passage. First, for God has done what the law had no hope of doing because of our sin by sending his son to become sin for us. And two, and because of what God has done, those who are in Christ are now able to revel in the freedom that is defined by walking according to the Spirit. First, for God has done what the law had no hope of doing because of our sin by sending his son to become sin for us. So here we go again. Paul just keeps on giving us the same truths over and over and over and over. Why? Because he knows how thick-headed we are. We are those stiff-necked people. Paul says something here in Romans 8.1, though, that is just as radical as what he said in Romans 5.20-21, which is, if you are in Christ, then there is no eternal condemnation for you. And again, he follows this by telling us exactly how this works, and it's all because of Jesus. Quite frankly, it has to be because, because as Paul also declared in Colossians 1, 15-20, everything in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible things, everything is for him, by him, through him, because of him, unto him, to his glory. Everything that ever was and ever will be is because of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself even says this on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 27, that everything in the law and the prophets is all about him. So if we are in him, if we believe in him as the only son of God and as our savior, then he has delivered us from our sin and we are now new creations in him for all eternity to be with him and delight in him forever. I want to first look at a reference point here that all good exegetical students are taught when trying to figure out what exactly is being said in Scripture. And I'm sure you've heard us, Jeff, myself, other people, speak of this before. 
Whenever there is a therefore, we have to ask of the text, what is it there for? So among top scholars, shocker of shockers, there is a slight difference of opinion as to what the therefore in verse 1 actually points to. People like James Dunn and Douglas Moo, who are both prominent Reformed people, say it actually points back to what Paul says in Romans 5, 12 to 21, specifically verses 20 to 21, which I will read. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. These are the verses that caused all the uproar and that correspondingly prompted Paul to ask the rhetorical question, are we to sin so that grace may abound? No. But other scholars like Cranfield, Jewett, and Thomas Schreiner don't reach back quite as far. They suggest that the therefore is referencing what Paul says in Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Both of these seem valid. I would like to you know, make a suggestion, though, that there's actually a third option, and it's sort of a cumulative option, that the therefore not only points back to those two instances, but that it also points forward to what Paul is saying here in verses 2 through 4. I'm going to reread the passage, and I've sort of reordered things a bit, but stick with me. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, I think all three of these understandings have a proper place in explaining what the therefore is actually there for, and specifically the expanse and comprehensiveness of what Paul is trying to communicate to us in verse 1. It's also interesting to note that in the original Greek, there is no verb in this statement. Quite literally translated, it would read, Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some manuscripts actually leave out the Christo, Christ, and only reference Yesu, Jesus. Now, it's not totally uncharacteristic for Kone Greek, classical Greek, to function in this way, but it's not the norm either. And usually when a verb is left out, we need to ask ourselves why. Is it simply a nuance of the author's writing style, or maybe just an oversight on Paul's part? Well, more than likely, especially when knowing that Paul was such an astute communicator and always paid very close attention to his writing, Paul was not a casual wordsmith. He is intentional, and he constructs what he wants to say specifically. So if the, word, if the verb is absent, it's relatively safe to presume Paul had a reason for leaving it out. And one of the often noted reasons for doing this in Greek grammar is for the purpose of emphasis. 
meaning that Paul was likely trying to emphatically pronounce the exceptional truth of his statement, not leaving any room for doubt or confusion. It's as if Paul in 8.1 is trying to summarize the three options I just mentioned in one hard-hitting truth. Give you an example. It is because God did what the law couldn't do by saving sinners through Christ's work, Romans 8, 3, 4. So we're now released from the law, so we can now walk in the Spirit, Romans 7, 6, which is because there is no amount of sin that can override God's infinite grace, Romans 5, 20, and 21. Is the law good? Yes. Can it save you? Well, yes and no. The last time I preached, it was on Romans 6, 12 to 14, and I will reiterate verse 14, and it addresses what Paul is talking about here in Romans 8. We are no longer under the law, but under grace. But here in Romans 8, 1 to 4, Paul fills in the details for what being under grace actually means. First, the law is not bad. It's good. It's perfect. It's from God. God has made everything good and he, was, and he has given the law so that we know what it means or looks like to love him and to love each other. And I'm sure you've heard me say this before, but it always bears repeating. The problem is not with God's perfect law. The problem is with us. This is what Paul is talking about when he says in verse 3, weakened by the flesh. The law is good. We just decided not to pay any attention to it, so we consequently deserve death, and that's exactly what we've got. You know, I'm often a little perplexed when I hear some Christians talk about original sin and emphatically declare that because of our sin, all humanity has died a spiritual death, which is true. But somehow we tend to forget that because we're all walking around upright, breathing, and enjoying life, relatively speaking, that our death is not just spiritual, but it's also a very real physical death. As I like to jokingly say from time to time, it's just a matter of divine scheduling. We're all dying from the moment we come into this world. Some of us may feel it a little bit or a lot of it more than others. But that doesn't change the reality that we're all going to completely check out of this life at some point. But again, as Paul so emphatically states in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ, God's only Son, condescended down to sinful humanity in the flesh for the express purpose of taking on all of our sin not just the sins of the past, but all the sins that ever were and all the sins that ever will be. And we had absolutely nothing to do with any of this, except, of course, that we are the sinners. This work is all because of what God has done. Jesus, in his death, paid the penalty for our sin, thus satisfying God's righteous wrath so that sin and death would be forever condemned and be no more. And not only for those who believe, but in order to reconcile all creation back to himself. This leads to my second point. Because of what God has done, those who are in Christ are now able to revel in the freedom that is defined by walking according to the Spirit. 
Thomas Schreiner, I believe, correctly identifies that while it is entirely the work of God in Christ that now gives believers the ability to walk in the Spirit, this does not rule out that as believers, saved by the blood of Christ, we are to actually do it. Schreiner makes it very clear, the forensic and the transformative work of Christ should not be wrenched apart and played off each other. They work together. This is not an either-or circumstance. It's a both-end reality for believers who are now new creations in Christ. This is Paul's exhortation. Christians must not just talk the walk, talk the talk, but walk the walk. The gospel is not only that God saves us by sacrificing his only son for us, but that he rescued us from ourselves for a purpose so that we can now love him and love others because this is what brings glory to our God. Think for a minute. How does it make any sense for Christ to die on the cross for our sins and be raised from the dead in order that we would now be a new creation in him if our newly created selves are not any different than how we were before we were a new creation? Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Well, I think if we've been in attendance for the past several weeks, we all know the answer to that question. But moreover, to not go on sinning is not simply a passive state of avoiding sin. It is that, of course, but it is also an actionable activity. We are to walk, to go forward in the Spirit, live according to God's law, love God, not the world. And don't just love your neighbor, but, and here's the hard part that so many Christians, myself included, struggle with, because it is the outworking of how God first loved us. It is in sacrificial love that God's glory is ultimately realized. So when we love God and our neighbor, we are to love them more than we love ourselves. Not easy. That's the standard. That's what it looks like to be a new creation in Christ. And that's what Paul means when he says, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And this may sting a bit, but here's an example of what it might look like in our day-to-day lives. It's going out on a Friday or Saturday night and ordering the filet mignon and all the fixings, sparing no expense, jacking up the credit card for your entire family. And then not simply taking the leftovers to the local shelter, but taking the entire meal and bringing the whole deal to the shelter. And maybe you and your family take some of the canned goods that we so graciously left in the hum bin, and now this is our dinner. Now, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad, and I'm not saying that we must all run out and do this. But what I am saying is that we might want to rethink just a bit how we understand what walking in the Spirit actually looks like, and to really try and envision how amazing God's gift to us in Christ truly is. God didn't just give up a weekend night out. He gave to us the most valuable thing he could give. He sacrificed his only son so that all of us belligerent sinners could be saved from ourselves. 
It, there's also a similar confusion that often occurs when we hear interpretations or defenses concerning how we understand what Jesus is saying and doing in his discourse with the rich young ruler. We typically explain away it as a, just a metaphor for how we are to trust in Christ. And it is that, but it's so much more than that. If we look at the text in Matthew 19, 21 to 22, we will notice two things. Two things that often get misunderstood and frequently and conveniently passed over. First, Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And we think perfect means just that, a perfection without error. But the word in Greek, which is teleos, is better understood as to be fully brought to its end, to be completed. In fact, this is the same word that is translated from the Aramaic of Jesus' last words on the cross when he says in John 19.30, Tetelestai, meaning quite literally, it has been completed, it is finished. So in this interchange between Jesus and the rich young ruler, Jesus isn't particularly challenging the young man to achieve perfection as the means to enter the kingdom. But rather, Jesus is challenging him to rethink what's truly important in understanding his sinful condition. And we know this because Jesus ends the sentence with the exhortation that, again, we tend to skip over when he says, And come and follow me. Why would he bother to say this if he was suggesting that if the young man could simply sell all his stuff, then he would be included in the kingdom of heaven for eternity? doesn't make any sense, and we know it can't be done anyway. No, the key is that we are to give up everything that is of value to us according to this world, drop it all, and follow Christ. Jesus has to be the most important thing in our lives if we are to be complete, perfect. And we're to do this with joyful hearts, reveling in our newfound freedom in Christ. So now that I got everybody feeling like total crap, (laughs) Let me also say that I'm under no illusions that any of us have the ability to walk in the Spirit completely and perfectly. And that's the point of verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because we can't do it. Jesus is the only one who can perfectly walk in the Spirit as and we assume that perfection, that completeness in God's eyes if we trust in Christ. But the point of verse 4 is also that because of verse 1, because we are now new creations in Christ, we are now not only expected but capable on some level of living this out. To walk in the Spirit, to love others more than we love ourselves because that's how God first loved us in Christ. In closing, I want to stress this point, and it's critical for understanding the assurance of our salvation in Christ. These exhortations by Paul, are, and ultimately by our Lord and Savior, they're not descriptive, they are descriptive, not prescriptive. What I mean by that is they are not things that we strive for to earn anything, to validate our faithfulness, or somehow gain our own salvation, because we all know that that can't happen. Rather, they are things we strive for because of what God has already done for us in Christ. They are a response to that amazing gift. They describe what our faithfulness looks like. They are the fruit of the Spirit. They are the inevitable outworking of our faith. 
because of the miraculous work that has been accomplished for us by God. Remember how this sermon started? For God has done. Like Jesus' words in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, Jesus is not telling his listeners that in order to be better Christians, we need to strive for more meekness or mourn more or be more merciful or make more peace. What he is saying is that these are the evidential fruits of being a Christian. Romans 8.1 is the good news of the gospel. It's the truth, the promise made by God to all mankind in Genesis 3.15 that he will defeat sin in the flesh and in and through his son, Jesus Christ. But because of this amazing good news, we do have things to do. We are to walk in the spirit. We are to love God and to love one another, not under duress or to earn favor, but in joy and in thanksgiving, falling all over ourselves to give everything of ourselves, even to those who we might think aren't worthy of gaining anything. Because this demonstrates the reckless abandon for how God first loved us. And it marks the truth of what Paul says here in Romans 8.1. Because of what God has done, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So now, go and live like this is actually true. Because it is. Praise be to God. You pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have given us the most amazing gift in sacrificing your Son for the sin of a, a belligerent people that in some crazy world thought that they could do things better than you, that we were smarter than you. Father, forgive us for our foolishness and for our stumbling. But Father, also help us to follow you, knowing that the gift of your Son has taken away our sin and given us a new life that we may be able to enjoy it with you in eternity. Ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.